0: Freedom and Virtue Institute presents Readings in the Freedom and Virtue Tradition, hosted by Director of Research, Kevin Schmiesing. Welcome to the latest installment in our Freedom and Virtue Tradition series. Before we get started, I wanted to encourage you to help us expand our reach by sharing this podcast with one or two friends. Thank you for doing so. Alexis de Tocqueville, 1805-1859, to 1859, was a French aristocrat and public intellectual. In 1831, he visited the United States, and in 1835 and 1840, he published in two volumes a lengthy account of the observations he made during his trip. Tocqueville's reflections have been cited, debated, and admired ever since, and Democracy in America is probably the most famous analysis of the U.S. ever written by a non-American. Our selection is from Chapters 4 and 5 in Volume 2 of Democracy in America, translated by Henry Reeve, as presented at Project Gutenberg. As usual, I have edited it in places for length and for suitability for this audio format. Here, Tocqueville discusses the way American culture overcomes the individualism that it otherwise promotes. In particular, Tocqueville highlights the crucial role of mediating institutions, organizations that stand between the individual and the government. The health of these institutions, the sphere we might call civil society, is one critical component of a free and virtuous society. Tocqueville writes of this dimension with insight that is still relevant almost 200 years later. Alexis de Tocqueville, Democracy in America, Volume 2, Chapter 4 That the Americans Combat the Effects of Individualism by Free Institutions Despotism is never more secure of continuance than when it can keep men asunder, and all its influence is commonly exerted for that purpose. No vice of the human heart is so acceptable to it as egotism. A despot easily forgives his subjects for not loving him, provided they do not love each other. He does not ask them to assist him in governing the state. It is enough that they do not aspire to govern it themselves. He stigmatizes as turbulent and unruly spirits those who would combine their exertions to promote the prosperity of the community, and, perverting the natural meaning of words, he applauds as good citizens those who have no sympathy for any but themselves. Thus the vices which despotism engenders are precisely those which equality fosters. These two things mutually and perniciously complete and assist each other. Equality places men side by side, unconnected by any common tie. Despotism raises barriers to keep them asunder. The former predisposes them not to consider their fellow creatures. The latter makes general indifference a sort of public virtue. Despotism, then which is at all times dangerous, is more particularly to be feared in democratic ages. It is easy to see that in those same ages men stand most in need of freedom. When the members of a community are forced to attend to public affairs, they are necessarily drawn from the circle of their own interests and snatched at times from self-observation. As soon as a man begins to treat of public affairs in public, He begins to perceive that he is not so independent of his fellow men as he had at first imagined, and that in order to obtain their support he must often lend them his cooperation. The Americans have combated by free institutions the tendency of equality to keep men asunder, and they have subdued it. The legislators of America did not suppose that a general representation of the whole nation would suffice to ward off a disorder at once so natural to the frame of democratic society and so fatal. They also thought that it would be well to infuse political life into each portion of the territory in order to multiply to an infinite extent opportunities of acting in concert for all the members of the community, and to make them constantly feel their mutual dependence on each other. The plan was a wise one. The general affairs of a country only engaged the attention of leading politicians, assemble from time to time in the same places, and as they often lose sight of each other afterwards, no lasting ties are established between them. But if the object be to have the local affairs of a district conducted by the men who reside there, the same persons are always in contact, and they are, in a manner, forced to be acquainted and to adapt themselves to one another. It is difficult to draw a man out of his own circle to interest him in the destiny of the state because he does not clearly understand what influence the destiny of the state can have upon his own lot. But if it be proposed to make a road cross the end of his estate, he will see at a glance that there is a connection between this small public affair and his greatest private affairs, and he will discover, without its being shown to him, the close tie which unites private to general interest. Thus far more may be done by entrusting to the citizens the administration of minor affairs, than by surrendering to them the control of important ones, toward interesting them in the public welfare, and convincing them that they constantly stand in need one of the other in order to provide for it. A brilliant achievement may win for you the favor of a people at one stroke, but to earn the love and respect of the population which surrounds you, a long succession of little services rendered and of obscure good deeds, a constant habit of kindness, and an established reputation for disinterestedness, will be required. Local freedom, then, which leads a great number of citizens to value the affection of their neighbors and of their kindred, perpetually brings men together, and forces them to help one another, in spite of the propensities which sever them. It would seem as if every imagination in the United States were upon the stretch to invent means of increasing the wealth and satisfying the wants of the public. The best-informed inhabitants of each district constantly use their information to discover new truths which may augment the general prosperity, and if they have made any such discoveries, they eagerly surrender them to the mass of the people. When the vices and weaknesses frequently exhibited by those who govern in America are closely examined, the prosperity of the people occasions, but improperly occasions, surprise. Elected magistrates do not make the American democracy flourish it flourishes because the magistrates are elective. It would be unjust to suppose that the patriotism and the zeal which every American displays for the welfare of his fellow citizens are wholly insincere. Although private interest directs the greater part of human actions in the United States as well as elsewhere, it does not regulate them all. I must say that I have often seen Americans make great and real sacrifices to the public welfare, And I have remarked a hundred instances in which they hardly ever failed to lend faithful support to each other. The free institutions which the inhabitants of the United States possess, and the political rights of which they make so much use, remind every citizen, and in a thousand ways, that he lives in society. They every instant impress upon his mind the notion that it is the duty, as well as the interest of men, to make themselves useful to their fellow creatures and as he sees no particular ground of animosity to them, since he is never either their master or their slave, his heart readily leans to the side of kindness. Men attend to the interests of the public, first by necessity, afterwards by choice. What was intentional becomes an instinct, and by dint of working for the good of one's fellow citizens, the habit and the taste for serving them is at length acquired." Many people in France consider equality of conditions as one evil, and political freedom as a second. When they are obliged to yield to the former, they strive at least to escape from the latter. But I contend that in order to combat the evils which equality may produce, there is only one effectual remedy, namely political freedom. Chapter 5 of the use which the Americans make of public associations in civil life. The political associations which exist in the United States are only a single feature in the midst of the immense assemblage of associations in that country. Americans of all ages, all conditions, and all dispositions constantly form associations. They have not only commercial and manufacturing companies, in which all take part, but associations of a thousand other kinds— Religious, moral, serious, futile, extensive or restricted, enormous or diminutive. The Americans make associations to give entertainments, to found establishments for education, to build inns, to construct churches, to diffuse books, to send missionaries to the Antipodes. And in this manner, they found hospitals, prisons, and schools. If it be proposed to advance some truth or to foster some feeling by the encouragement of a great example, they form a society. Wherever, at the head of some new undertaking, you see the government in France, or a man of rank in England, in the United States you will be sure to find an association. I met with several kinds of associations in America, of which I confess I had no previous notion, and I have often admired the extreme skill with which the inhabitants of the United States succeed in proposing a common object to the exertions of a great many men, and in getting them voluntarily to pursue it. I have since traveled over England, Whence the Americans have taken some of their laws and many of their customs, and it seemed to me that the principle of association was by no means so constantly or so adroitly used in that country. The English often perform great things singly, whereas the Americans form associations for the smallest undertakings. It is evident that the former people consider association as a powerful means of action, but the latter seem to regard it as the only means they have of acting. Thus the most democratic country on the face of the earth is that in which men have in our time carried to the highest perfection the art of pursuing in common the object of their common desires, and have applied this new science to the greatest number of purposes. Is this the result of accident, or is there in reality any necessary connection between the principle of association and that of equality? Aristocratic communities always contain, amongst a multitude of persons who by themselves are powerless, a small number of powerful and wealthy citizens, each of whom can achieve great undertakings single-handed. In aristocratic societies, men do not need to combine in order to act, because they are strongly held together. Every wealthy and powerful citizen constitutes the head of a permanent and compulsory association, composed of all those who are dependent upon him, or whom he makes subservient to the execution of his designs. Amongst democratic nations, on the contrary, all the citizens are independent and feeble. They can do hardly anything by themselves, and none of them can oblige his fellow men to lend him their assistance. They all, therefore, fall into a state of incapacity, if they do not learn voluntarily to help each other. If men living in democratic countries had no right and no inclination to associate for political purposes, their independence would be in great jeopardy. But they might long preserve their wealth and their cultivation." Whereas if they never acquire the habit of forming associations in ordinary life, civilization itself would be endangered. A people amongst which individuals should lose the power of achieving great things single-handed without acquiring the means of producing them by united exertions would soon relapse into barbarism. Unhappily, the same social condition which renders associations so necessary to democratic nations renders their formation more difficult amongst those nations than amongst all others. When several members of an aristocracy agree to combine, they easily succeed in doing so. As each of them brings great strength to the partnership, the number of its members may be very limited. And when the members of an association are limited in number, they may easily become mutually acquainted, understand each other, and establish fixed regulations. The same opportunities do not occur amongst democratic nations, where the associated members must always be very numerous, for their association to have any power. I am aware that many of my countrymen are not in the least embarrassed by this difficulty. They contend that the more enfeebled and incompetent the citizens become, the more able and active the government ought to be rendered, in order that society at large may execute what individuals can no longer accomplish. They believe this answers the whole difficulty. But I think they are mistaken. A government might perform the part of some of the largest American companies, and several states, members of the Union, have already attempted it. But what political power could ever carry on the vast multitude of lesser undertakings which the American citizens perform every day with the assistance of the principle of association? It is easy to foresee that the time is drawing near when man will be less and less able to produce of himself alone the commonest necessaries of life. The task of the governing power will therefore perpetually increase and its very efforts will extend it every day. The more it stands in the place of associations, the more will individuals, losing the notion of combining together, require its assistance. These are causes and effects which unceasingly engender each other. Will the administration of the country ultimately assume the management of all the manufacturers, which no single citizen is able to carry on? And if a time at length arrives, When in consequence of the extreme subdivision of landed property, the soil is split into an infinite number of parcels, so that it can only be cultivated by companies of husbandmen, will it be necessary that the head of the government should leave the helm of state to follow the plow? The morals and the intelligence of a democratic people would be as much endangered as its business and manufactures if the government ever wholly usurped the place of private companies. Feelings and opinions are recruited, the heart is enlarged, and the human mind is developed by no other means than by the reciprocal influence of men upon each other. I have shown that these influences are almost null in democratic countries. They must therefore be artificially created, and this can only be accomplished by associations. When the members of an aristocratic community adopt a new opinion or conceive a new sentiment, they give it a station, as it were, beside themselves, upon the lofty platform where they stand, and opinions or sentiments so conspicuous to the eyes of the multitude are easily introduced into the minds or hearts of all around. In democratic countries, the governing power alone is naturally in a condition to act in this manner, but it is easy to see that its action is always inadequate and often dangerous. A government can no more be competent to keep alive and to renew the circulation of opinions and feelings amongst a great people than to manage all the speculations of productive industry. No sooner does a government attempt to go beyond its political sphere and to enter upon this new track, than it exercises, even unintentionally, an insupportable tyranny. For a government can only dictate strict rules, the opinions which it favors are rigidly enforced, and it is never easy to discriminate between its advice and its commands. Worse still will be the case if the government really believes itself interested in preventing all circulation of ideas, It will then stand motionless and oppressed by the heaviness of voluntary torpor. Governments, therefore, should not be the only active powers. Associations ought, in democratic nations, to stand in lieu of those powerful private individuals whom the equality of conditions has swept away. As soon as several of the inhabitants of the United States have taken up an opinion or a feeling which they wish to promote in the world, they look out for mutual assistance and as soon as they have found each other out, they combine. From that moment they are no longer isolated men, but a power seen from afar, whose actions serve for an example, and whose language is listened to. Nothing, in my opinion, is more deserving of our attention than the intellectual and moral associations of America. The political and industrial associations of that country strike us forcibly, but the others elude our observation, or if we discover them, we understand them imperfectly, because we have hardly ever seen anything of the kind. It must, however, be acknowledged that they are as necessary to the American people as the former, and perhaps more so. In democratic countries, the science of association is the mother of science. The progress of all the rest depends upon the progress it has made. Amongst the laws which rule human societies, there is one which seems to be more precise and clear than all others. If men are to remain civilized or to become so, the art of associating together must grow and improve in the same ratio in which the equality of conditions is increased. Thank you for listening to this production of the Freedom and Virtue Institute. To offer feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please contact Kevin Schmiesing by email, kevin at fvinstitute.org.